Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. It's marvellous to be back here in the studio at HL Towers. I'm Susanna Streeter, Head of Money and Markets. And I'm Sarah Coles, Head of Personal Finance. And I tell you what, it's a lot warmer in here than in my studio broom cupboard at home. I've been taking to wearing a, a fake fur gilet when recording for radio interviews over the past few weeks. It's uh, proved to be a very handy Christmas present. And a very expensive one, by the sounds of things. No, no, not really. You know me, I'm always scouting for bargains, even when it's to find presents for other people to give me. Well, you're not alone in that, because bargain hunting is a bit of a national habit. So first we had the discount grocers, Aldi and Lidl, unwrapping some tasty numbers. But now the desire to save cash but treat ourselves at the same time is affecting companies that used to exercise an awful lot of clout when it came to brand power. Yes, the shine appears to have been coming off big luxury brands and it's not just the high-end market being affected. It seems that we're sniffing out bargains and better deals almost everywhere from trainers to cars. And this is what we want to explore in more detail in this edition of the podcast which we're calling The Riddle of the Brands. Yes, we're going to be speaking to Sophie Lund-Yates about some of the companies appearing to feel the pinch of more cautious spending patterns and what the outlook could be. Yes, the names on my list today are JD Sports, Burberry and Tesla. We'll hear from Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, who's been getting a funds perspective on the luxury market. And we're going to delve into what all of this means for the fashion industry. Are trainers risking going out of fashion? With Lauren Cochrane, who's a freelance fashion writer who really is plugged into everything that's going on at such a huge time of the year for the fashion industry. So, Lauren, is there anything that feels different about preparations for London Fashion Week this year? I think the main difference is that they're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Fashion Week. So there's a lot of talk about the heritage of Fashion Week as well as what's happening on the schedule. Thanks, Lauren. We look forward to finding out a lot more later in the podcast. So when you look at what's been happening to our finances, it's little surprise that consumers are a bit more wary about spending big. So people have been dealing with price rises for more than two years. And for those people at the lower end of the income scale, financial resilience is waning. And the pain isn't over. We had that shock rise in inflation in December and we might see it stay stubborn in January too due to the higher energy price cap coming into effect. So it's thrown speculation about when an interest rate cut will come up in the air again. So inflation is expected to fall more markedly in the spring. But understandably, there's a lot of caution out there. Yes, and as a result, the items that uh, we might covet but don't actually need are slipping down shopping lists. The latest HL Savings and Resilience barometer showed that we've cut back on non-essentials and are buying roughly 5% less than we did before the pandemic. The level of luxuries we buy has dropped steadily since the start of 2022. So in December, retail sales in the UK fell back much more markedly than expected, with volumes dropping 3.2%. Sales at department stores were particularly badly hit, with sales volumes falling by just over 7%. People bought fewer toys and gifts, sports equipment and nice-to-have goods like jewellery. Now, of course, the ultra-wealthy are far more insulated from cost-of-living pressures. In fact, the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer showed that finances have actually been improving for those at the upper end of the income spectrum. But a number of companies are flagging falling sales growth in key markets where inflation has run riot over the past couple of years. So it does appear as though aspirational shoppers are tightening their belts too. So one big share price slide in January was from Watches of Switzerland, which saw its biggest share price fall on record 
record after it lowered earnings expectations in the face of flattening demand for luxury watches like Rolexes and a disappointing uh, Christmas period. So gone are the days, it seems, of the post-pandemic sales boom when shoppers indulged in some revenge retail therapy helped by piles of lockdown savings. So the luxury market is now navigating some tricky tides. The challenge of maintaining high prices while a global slowdown swirls around them amid tense geopolitics and scenes of conflict. The fact that Bentley car sales are down 11% in a year is a sign that even the super rich are thinking twice before making a major purchase. It said sales in the UK, China and Hong Kong were down even further, falling almost a fifth. Of course, what's happening in China is a big factor. So China had been the powerhouse for global luxury brand sales. But with the property market so fragile, it's affecting wealth perceptions and a willingness to spend big amongst the middle classes in particular. So people are still keen to treat themselves, but it's perhaps on smaller ticket items. It was interesting to see Boots the Chemist flag a surge in beauty sales in its recent update. Yeah, it really was. That old lipstick effect showing up again, where people can't afford their usual luxury spending so splash out on small treats instead. Um, Maybe it's just me, but honestly, I've collected so many lipsticks. I I really would prefer to treat myself with an artisan scotch egg. I'm slightly obsessed with the ones in the deli near me at the moment. Yes, the uh, posh bakery near me runs out of cronuts mid-morning, so that's clearly the local luxury spend of choice. They sound delicious. But there are some signs that the right brands are weathering this storm. The luxury powerhouse LVMH revealed some better-than-expected quarterly sales late last month, helping ease fears about a sharp slowdown and leading to a rebound in its share price. It's widely considered to be a bellwether for the luxury market, and it reported sales growth of around 10% around Christmas, which is certainly not to be sniffed at. Yes, it's going to be really interesting to see the strategies of big brands in the months ahead. Will some of them follow some of the big players in the car industry in reducing prices to try to increase sales? Or will they play a longer game and wait until darker economic clouds have passed? Interestingly, a report from Bain says that many brands in the personal luxury goods market didn't plan for this after growing Over a fifth between 2021 and 2022, they weren't really ready for 2023 to deliver growth of just 4%. Many of them are carrying way too much stock and unsold stock raises the dilemma of cheapening the brand by discounting or throwing it all into landfill and taking a big hit to the bottom line. So what impact is all of this having on listed companies? Well, let's have a chat to Sophie Lundyates. So Sophie, staying with big brands, it's an interesting time for retailers, isn't it? Tell us what's been going on with JD Sports. So a really interesting time for the names on the high street. Now, JD Sports has had a rough start to 2024, to be honest. I mean, we saw the shares fall about 29% last month. Yes, I remember seeing that. So what exactly was it that spooked the market? So essentially, JD Sports cut their forecasts. So trading in the 22 weeks to the end of December was weaker than expected, meaning annual profits will be lower than hoped. Now, there are a few things that investors are are worried about, really. So as a lot of listeners will know, JD Sports is known for stocking exclusives from popular sports brands such as Nike, Adidas and the North Face. Um, Now, this is something that gives the group an edge and is a bit of a, you know, a, a unique selling point. But the issue is there are now questions over how long this can be the case. JD Sports had to discount so i'm talking really about price wars with competitors in the us and europe it's also then missed out on sales in britain because it wouldn't do the same thing here so 
Does this mean that it's all bad news? No, I don't think so. So some of the challenges also stemmed from sector-wide issues rather than anything JD Sports specific. So that's things like weaker consumer spending, which in theory should start to reverse once the economy is back on an even footing. Excuse the pun. I mean, JD Sports remains a well-run business in my opinion, and the degree to which the shares have been punished could potentially be overdone. But, and it's a big but, the market is going to remain sensitive to any further misses. And, and there is a hefty and growing cost base, which makes profit generation trickier too. So, what I'm saying, a good company, but the short term's likely to be bumpy. Got it. Thanks, Sophie. We need to buy more expensive trainers is what I'm taking away from that. So let's pivot a little. What's going on with higher end cars? <laughs> yes, from trainers to Tesla. Now, most people would regard a Tesla as a luxury item, and it's certainly one of the best known brands around. But it too is facing disruption from price wars. Now, as people hold off on buying bigger ticket items and competition in the sector heats up, it's spelling trouble for Tesla's margins. Now, to put that in a bit of context, Tesla's fourth quarter automotive revenues, which were reported in late Jan, rose just 1% to $21.6 billion. Now, growth was held back by lower prices. The slower revenue growth and big investment into software and AI means margins are under huge pressure. So operating profit fell 47% to $2.1 billion. Elon Musk has also warned that sales growth would be notably lower in the new financial year amid weaker consumer demand. Now, the company is also preparing to start production of a new lower cost car. So really, the picture being painted is one of lower consumer spending, even at the higher end of the spectrum. Yes, absolutely. But I would just caveat to say Tesla does still have an excellent product and the valuation is more compelling than it has been. And if production can be ramped up at base, the horizon for more attractive per unit costs looks rosy. Now, there's no denying Tesla's remaining appeal, but the market is unlikely to fully replenish the group's valuation until margins are pointing north. Now, that's going to be a challenge while the outlook for volumes looks shaky. How is this weakening consumer trend showing up in luxury fashion? We are seeing some weakness in luxury fashion demand, not necessarily that sales are falling off a cliff, but that they are slowing. Um, now, the market doesn't take too kindly to that because luxury Luxury has long been hailed as being more resilient, so expectations are higher. OK, but the change in dynamics is hurting some more than others, isn't it? Including a very well-known brand. Yep, you're right. We need to look at Burberry. So the group issued a profit warning back in January. This trading update for the 13 weeks to the 30th of December 2023 essentially showed that revenue was down 2%. Sales fell in EMEIA, so that's Europe, the Middle East, India and Africa and also the Americas. Now, that was partly offset by growth of 3% in Asia-Pacific. Now, given a drop in luxury demand and weak December trading, fully underlying operating profit is now expected to be between 410 to £460 million. Pounds. Now, that's compared to consensus of £522 million. Pounds. So what is it that's causing some of this? So-called aspirational shoppers are one of the demographics pulling back. And Burberry is more exposed to this type of customer than super high-end luxury. Now, there's been particular weakness in the US as well, where consumers have been running down their savings amid a higher interest rates and inflation environment. Growth is also slowing in Asia following tougher comparisons. So in terms of how I phrase this, you know, Burberry is in a hostile trading environment, but that doesn't mean hope is lost. In fact, we've been pleased with underlying progress. You know, really, we still think Burberry is doing a lot of the right things behind the scenes. You know, it's worked to elevate the brand, investing in products and improving distribution. 
There's a new CEO, CFO and creative leadership leading the charge. But I just end on a note of caution in that we may not have seen the last of short term blips. Okay, thank you very much, Sophie. Now, all of these trends are unfolding just as the luxury industry ramps up for a super important time of the year when the latest ranges are unveiled at Fashion Weeks from Paris to New York, Milan to London. It's a key time for big brands who hope their latest collections spark envies and desires among well-heeled shoppers around the world. So we know that these brands have faced a major impact. So Burberry isn't the only listed company that's faced luxury shoppers cutting back. Mulberry also noticed a slowdown and called out the end of VAT-free shopping for tourists as one of the major issues. As far as the UK economy is concerned, the fashion and textile industry is vitally important. It supports 1.3 million jobs, including manufacture, wholesale and retail. So that's around one in every 25 jobs in the UK. And it contributes £62 billion to the UK's economic output. So the fact that luxury fashion sales were down almost 10% in November is going to take a toll. So let's bring in freelance fashion writer Lauren Cochrane now to find out what impact economic headwinds are having on one of the largest sectors of the UK economy. Lauren, would you say that there is real concern about the slowdown in luxury fashion or do you think the industry assumes that it's just a blip? I think you can see the concern in fashion in terms of the designs that designers are creating in terms of luxury brands specifically so something like Gucci going a bit more minimal and quote-unquote wearable with their new designer which goes against the sort of eccentricity that they had previously also the kind of wider trend of quiet luxury which is much more discreet kind of fashion which inevitably has more consumers than something that's a bit more kind of fashion forward so I think you can see it there. So I mean, if you're sort of looking broadly across the fashion industry and, you know, aside from the designers, some of which are obviously, you know, having some trickier times, what do you think about the high street? Where do you think the strengths and weaknesses of the high street are at the moment? Lots of high street stores have gone, but then you also get pockets of huge success. So something like the kind of Uniqlo circle bag, which was voted, I think, the item of the year for 2023. And that was voted as the product of the year against all other luxury fashion as well. So you kind of get these blips in a positive sense, as well as points at which high street shops are just not really chiming with consumers. And also there's other brands that are positive stories such as Next, which continues to do well. And Cos seems to be having something of a moment as well. So there are examples of it hitting, as it were. But yeah, I mean, the wider trend, it's not doing that well. Do you think the fashion industry's role in the UK economy as a whole is underestimated? And do you think this will be a bit of a feature? You mentioned that it's the 40th anniversary of London Fashion Week uh, coming up. Do you think that will be kind of a big push actually for London Fashion Week this year? I think it's massively undervalued and I think it's often undervalued because it's seen as silly or a bit faddish. I think there's an element of sexism involved in how fashion is undervalued because it's seen as something that's for women, quote unquote, and therefore not serious. I also think it seems a sort of massive fail that we're not giving props to this part of the industry where actually it's a proven moneymaker. Is menswear, is that faring better than women's wear at the moment or is it all kind of facing a bit of a struggle at the moment? 
Menswear has had a bit of a boom in recent times. There's a kind of idea that men are becoming more experimental and interested in fashion, and it's becoming less of a stigma, I suppose. It sounds incredibly old-fashioned for a man to be kind of interested in fashion. That changed a long time ago, but I think it's becoming much more normalised for men to be interested in clothes. I mean, even if you think about the real heteronormative icons like footballers, the labels they wear now are much more off the beaten track. And that, I think, shows how menswear, there is an opportunity there for brands, which there might not have been before. Interesting you say that because um, out of all the kind of shop openings on my particular street right now is a kind of men's grooming uh, salon that perhaps you certainly wouldn't have had uh, a few years ago. But the other interesting development as well is the, the surge in kind of secondhand shops. And do you think the rise of secondhand is a long term trend within the fashion industry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Particularly in the digital age, it's been picked up on. It's got a lot more mass appeal and it's much more convenient, basically, with things like Depop and eBay and Vinted. I read that two thirds of Gen Z prefer to shop secondhand. We're now moving into a sort of situation where it could flip and that becomes the norm over buying new pieces all the time. So what's next in the style stakes? I mean, we've talked about their secondhand becoming more popular. Are trainers going to be such a big deal going forward? Well, you know, when politicians start wearing anything, it's a death knoll to a trend, really. So I think the fact that, you know, Richie Sunak is walking around in trainers probably means trainers may be over. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the fashion crowd are moving to things like chunky loafers and more extreme items like Crocs. It's about a different take on footwear. I have visions of the Prime Minister wearing Crocs right now. I'm not sure. <laughs> Crocs and socks. Well, you never know. You never Crocs know. and socks. So what are you most excited about for London Fashion Week this year? I'm excited about the young designers that we'll see at Fashion East, which is always a kind of interesting idea of what we've got coming up in terms of new talent. And then I'm interested to see if the aesthetic of minimalism, which we've seen a little bit of at Gucci and things, will come through to other brands. I think it has come through to some brands like Aaron Esch is already doing that a bit at London Fashion Week. And his take on minimalism is a bit more louche and slightly decadent, which I think is an interesting modern take on it. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. Now it's time to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, who's been looking at this from a fund management perspective. Yes, she's been speaking to Benjamin Moore of Columbia Threadneedle. Hi, Ben. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Yeah, great, thanks. So tell me, what is the investor appeal of luxury goods stocks? I remember an interview with Damien Hirst, the British artist, when he was talking about an auction of his work that had gone, I think, for $200 million. And he summed it up pretty succinctly. He said, if, if two people have got a lot of money and you make something that they both want, it's going to sell for a lot of money. So the simplest answer is that when you're the only person producing something that people all around the world are desperate to buy, you have a very lucrative business. From an investment perspective, if I take a step back, I think there are three criteria that, to my mind, make a wonderful business. They are growth potential, the returns on capital, the economics of the business, and the longevity or the sustainability of that business. And if these companies are well managed, I think you can have all three of those characteristics in spades. But I would also end with a sort of final caveat that 
this is not as easy as it looks. It's actually very difficult to sustain the desirability of a brand over decades. And so one does need to be selective in the space. Very true. Uh, And you talked there about demand, and I love the Damien Hirst quote. Is there a particular area of the world or a particular sector of clients or even age demographics, actually, where these brands are seeing demand? Because I imagine that's something that has shifted over time. I think from a geographic perspective, the obvious growth driver has always been where wealth is being created most rapidly. So five years ago, the clear answer to where brands were seeing the most demand or the fastest growth would have been China. China grew to a third of the industry in 2019 and was the the key growth driver for the industry over the previous decade. What's interesting is that COVID mixed things up. Most of that Chinese luxury spend had actually been abroad. Chinese consumers would fly to Europe, they'd buy their handbags Mm -hmm. and clothes here. And with COVID, as you can imagine, suddenly they weren't able to travel. And at the same time, European and American consumers had money in their pockets and they had less places to spend it. So we've actually seen a resurgence of the US and European buyer. I guess going forward, if we look at other countries like India or Indonesia, the question will be how they accelerate and how they offset what is clearly a a slowing Chinese economy as the Chinese consumers mature. And how impacted by the economic cycle of luxury brands? You've talked there about COVID, which obviously had a global market and economic impact. We're looking at kind of lower growth outlook for the coming few years, not asking you to make any forecasts. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but looking historically, are luxury brands economic cycle agnostic? That is the the trillion dollar question at the moment. And the short answer is that we don't know. I would actually say it probably matters less than you might think, and I'll get to that in a second. But to answer the question on cyclicality, these are luxuries, they're not necessities, so you would expect them to be the first things consumers cut in a downturn. There are mitigating factors. One would be that these companies have very loyal client bases and often have waiting lists, maybe half of Ferraris are sold to existing owners or you think about how long you'd need to wait for a a Kelly or a Birkin handbag. And the other mitigating factor is that depending on the downturn, the wealthiest consumers may be less impacted um, because we are talking about a very, very small cohort of customers that actually matter. So Bain has these luxury industry estimates and they think that 2% of customers represent 40% of revenues for the industry. But I think the more important point that can be forgotten is that downturns are a great opportunity to buy these businesses. And what is much more important is actually brand health rather than a cyclical downturn. Companies recover from a cyclical downturn if their brand has been properly nurtured. And so exogenous bad news can give you a great opportunity. I remember when COVID hit, Brunello Cuccinelli used the analogy of an olive grove that had a particular impact from weather and the crop was bad but the following years it recovered and you had a very good crop so I think it's important to look through short-term bad news as long as it's exogenous what's important to us is how these brands are managed because it's much harder than it looks it helps that many of these businesses are family controlled they, they really care about the long term because it's slightly counterintuitive about how to run a luxury goods business 
the conventional wisdom in a regular industrial company might be to maximize sales and to minimize costs in any given year. Whereas in luxury, the reverse is probably true. Enzo Ferrari had a mantra to produce one less car than the market demanded. And Hermes will actually stop producing a product if it's selling particularly well. So if a company cuts costs and doesn't invest properly behind their brand, they'll really run into problems. And as long-term investors, that's exactly the sort of thing we want to avoid. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. That was Emma Wall talking to Benjamin Moore of Columbia Threadneedle. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You've been listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And before we go, there's time for a quick stash of the week. I know it's your favourite time of the week, Sarah, so... (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) We are going to stick with fashion, specifically jeans. So... Apparently, the jeans market was one of the first to bounce back after the pandemic, despite so many people already having more than one pair. So my question is, how many pairs do people actually have? Specifically, though, just to make it really hard, (laughs) specifically in Mexico, where there are the highest number per person. So is it 6, 11 or 60? Well, I mean, I suppose I always think that I have too many. I mean, in my defence, I'm more sort of Georgia Asda rather than Georgia Omani. Uh, <laughs> but I think I probably have about five. So I'm, I'm going to go with six as the, as the overall number in Mexico. No, it is 16. Whew. I know. <laughs> and over half of people in Mexico are planning to buy more this year. Can you actually get them all in the wardrobe? Anyway, in the UK, we own seven each on average and fewer than a third plan to buy this year. So you actually have less than average. I only own one pair. Denim shirts and skirts are definitely all my thing. Oh, double denim. Very cool. (laughs) 16 is a ridiculous number though, isn't it? Yes, I'm going to have to try not to use that excuse to buy more. You really can have too many pairs. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 5th of February 2024 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance is not a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Lauren, Benjamin, Sophie, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Potson. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>